children in the bulletin tonight, you'll find your words that you're listening for. The words are count, and cost, follow, follower, disciple, salt, and Jesus. Those are the words for tonight. Well, I'm going to begin. I always end with questions, and I'm I'm going to start with a question tonight. And the question is this, are you willing to allow Jesus to make you uncomfortable tonight? That's not original with me, I heard that earlier today. The more appropriate question actually is, are you ready for Jesus to make you uncomfortable tonight? Because the truth of the matter is, He's going to, uh, whether we like it or not, and whether we allow Him or not. We're going to be uncomfortable. And actually, this isn't anything new. He's been doing this uh, for the last several weeks. I told the elders tonight, I'm looking forward to the next three weeks. I mean, I'm looking, I've been looking forward to tonight, of course, gathering with you and preaching this text from His Word, but I'm looking forward to the next three weeks because of We're going to focus on the compassion of Christ, and we've been talking about the compassion of Christ, but for the last several weeks, um, really past couple months, we've been presented with a decision, a choice, and there there have only been two options, and that's the same way it is tonight. Right? We're going to we're we're looking at the fact we've. We've got a choice, right? So far, the options have been life or death or things of heaven, things of earth, or forgiveness or judgment or accept or reject. Tonight, it's all or nothing. It doesn't get any easier. The discomfort level just rises. And I don't know about you, I just, I'm going to be honest and lay it all out there, but I've been th- as I've been thinking about this this week, I would, I, I've thought to myself, Lord, it would be uh, nice to not have to preach on a text that's so black and white. How about a little gray? Just for a change. How about something less definitive? How about something at least less heavy? And we're going to have to get over that, whatever it is. So I'm sorry for the, the problems there. We have no control over that. But I was reminded again this morning that he has been so black or white for a reason. He's been black or white because he knows how this is all going to end. He knows the end from the beginning. And he understands and knows what's at stake. Therefore, he's being black and white. He also knows us. He knows who we are, and He knows what we need. And He has what's in our best interest in mind. Therefore, He's been so black and white. So let me come back to the original question. Are you ready for Jesus to make you uncomfortable? And the other question is, will you bow your neck and attempt to break His will over yours, or will you humble yourself and submit 
and bend your will to his. Here in the last 11 verses of chapter 14, Jesus lets all of those who are making up this crowd who are accompanying him, this great crowd, he's letting all of them know that there is no fine print when it comes to following him. No fine print. He's not trying to dissuade anybody. We're not going to see him. He wasn't trying to dissuade anybody from following. He just wants to, or he was just making sure that he fully disclosed all the terms and conditions of discipleship. He was making sure that there were no surprises. He was making sure that uh, there were, well, was no confusion and that, and that there was no ambiguity. He's not laying down terms and conditions of salvation. We know Right? We know from His own lips that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's simply by looking to Him, He alone, for salvation. So He's not talking about salvation, but He is being very clear that there are terms and conditions regarding who will follow. You know, who follow. After coming to Him in salvation, what, is, what does life look like for the believer? What does it look like to follow? He's also not trying to lay out the next steps for a disciple that, in order that they might become an apostle, as if there's this next deeper spiritual place for them to go. He, he's laying out or he's pitching the basics. These are the requisites for every single disciple of Christ. The bottom line is, while salvation is free, Jesus says tonight, following Him is not easy. Salvation may be free, but being a disciple will come or would come at a cost. And that cost must be counted by every single person before they choose to follow. So in this passage, there are four things I want us to see. This is going to make up our outline. The four things are are these. I want us to see the claim being made. I want us to see the the challenge to accept, the cost to count, and the crisis to avoid, right? The claim being made, the challenge to accept, the cost to count, and the crisis to avoid. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we go any further. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant uh, power to the preaching of your Word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Grant all of us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His Gospel. Father, would you allow us by your grace to focus our attention and overcome the gremlins in the room? Would you awaken uh, our attention and convict us and challenge us? And then please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. Always, as always, I am weak and needed to this task to which you've called me. I'm unfit for this task and I'm weak and needy. So I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for you and for your church this evening. Help me to communicate clearly and with fervency and fervor and grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And amen. Well, it's common. If you read commentaries regarding this passage, it's very common for um, commentators and pastors as well to move really quickly through this passage and explaining the passage. Uh, They move quickly to explain the strong language that's present in the passage. Um, 
there is some hyperbolic language here. There is some historical background of some of the language that we will talk about in just a minute. But I think it's possible to move so quickly through these explanations that, that we miss this claim that Christ is making. It's not a new claim, but it is a bold claim. And He's made it before. And it's a claim that we've seen, not only in the past, but we'll see in these weeks ahead. It's a claim that is used as fodder. It's fodder that will fuel the embers of disdain within the religious establishment. Those that are, as we said last week, they're lurkingly watching and listening and waiting for Him to give them something so that they might eliminate Him from the scene so that they can restore order and basically regain control for themselves. And the claim was this. Jesus says, in this passage, I'm God. He doesn't use those exact words. He doesn't say, I am God. But what He's about to demand, the demands that He's going to make will be nothing less than restating the first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before Me. The demands that He's going to make that we've already heard read but that we're going to look at more closely is nothing less than the summary statement we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Matthew 22, Mark 12, and of course Luke 10. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. His claim was He alone was worthy of the demands He was about to make. He alone was worthy of the challenge that He was about to set before them. He alone was worthy of the unparalleled devotion that He was going to seek from them and that He was about to describe. He alone was worthy because He alone, as we've made reference to the past couple weeks, He alone is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There was no one before and no one since who could demand the type of absolute devotion that Christ was demanding because there has been no one like Him before or since. He and He alone is the God-man. And has the right to say what he says. And that absolute devotion was the challenge that his followers must accept. And the challenge was revealed through three statements. The first statement is found in verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, because he is preeminent and surpasses all others, 
Those who follow Him must consider their relationship with Him to be first and foremost, their first and foremost relationship that surpasses all other relationships that they have. Even the closest of relationships. And here's where this explanation is necessary. This is uh, hyperbole in that he's not actually calling his disciples to hate their family or to hate themselves. We know he's not calling his the husbands to divorce their wives and for wives to divorce their spouses, and he's not calling uh, the parents to abandon their children. He's using um, he's using it to communicate what was communicated when it was used in the Old Testament, which is the idea of loving less. He can't actually mean hate, and we know that when the law states that we are to honor our father and mother. Right? We know he's not telling husbands to hate their wives in, in the sense of abandoning, abandoning them because he tells us in, in Ephesians that you know, God instituted marriage and husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. We know that he can't mean hate when he's called all of us to love others and we, we've learned in Luke we're even called to love our enemies. So when he says that they must hate their own families both extended immediately or immediate and even themselves, he's saying they must love him more. They must be devoted to him more. They must be obligated to him more. They must be loyal to him more, more than anyone else, no matter who it might be. Even the closest of temporal relationships take a back seat to their relationship with Him. The second statement, for our purposes, and the third one He makes is found in verse 33. He says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, because He is preeminent and all things were created by Him And for him, those who follow him must consider him, must consider him to far surpass anything and any and every material possession that they own, any and every monetary benefit they enjoy, any and every physical resource at their disposal. Again, Here's where the explanation is necessary. He's not saying that after they forsake their parents and after they divorce their spouses and after they abandon their children, they're to then quit their jobs, sell everything they own, give all their money away, and live a vow of poverty. He's not demanding that they live lives devoid of worldly pleasures. He's not telling them that they need to live lives of abstinence and extreme self-denial in order to reach some greater spiritual place or spiritual plane. He's not calling them to deny themselves any food, certain foods or drinks or sexual intimacy or whatever else people might give up for Lent. When he says they must renounce all, he's saying something actually more difficult. It's more difficult to do than to simply not drink something or to not eat something. 
He's saying that the possessions they have are not to possess them. The things that they hold are not to have a hold on them. He's saying that they are to be open-handed rather than closed-fisted when it came to material and monetary things. Actually, when we go back to the first statement, right, the same could be said of people in our lives as well. The people and things in the life of the disciple are good gifts given to us from the Lord that are to be enjoyed and appreciated, but are not to be over-desired. They're not to become necessary sources of our satisfaction. They're not to become our security or to provide a sense of, I, of our identity. The bottom line is they are not to become idols. Both people and things. He's saying they must love Him more. They must trust Him more. They must desire Him more. They must rely upon Him more than anything else, no matter what it might be or how precious it is. And then the third statement, for our purposes, that is actually His second, is found in verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple." In other words, because of who He is and what He's come to do on their behalf, those who follow Him must be devoted to Him to the point that they are willing to lay down their lives for His sake. Notice they weren't to take up His cross. His cross. And that's because no one other than Christ could bear His cross. You and I are unable to bear that cross. He alone bore the cross that bore the curse of the law. Right? He alone paid the price of our sin that was not His own and took on the shame, took on that emblem of shame that was His cross. He alone could become sin so that you and I as sinners could become the righteousness of God. His disciples, we, we do not, disciples do not join Him in His redemptive work that, that He alone could accomplish. No, He says we're to take up our own crosses. He says take up your own cross, lay down your lives for my sake and for the sake of my church. He says they're to be willing to absorb whatever suffering and shame, and ridicule, and persecution that might come their way due to their commitment to Him, even to the point of death. But that's not all. He says, followers of Christ, in Paul's words, we know, um, Paul says that uh, we have died to sin and can no longer live in it. The old self and the old man have been buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the new self, the new man might, be, might walk in newness of life. And I've kind of put some passages together there. Therefore, He says that we, are, we need to be willing to die to ourselves daily. Dying to ourselves daily as we continually strive to deny our own wants, 
as we strive not to gratify the desires of our flesh, as we strive to mortify and kill our sin. Without reservation, right? He is, he is not pausing, not hesitating, but he's saying those who follow him must cherish him and desire him more than they cherish their own lives and their own sinful desires and their own fleshly appetites. He and he alone was to be first and foremost because he alone was worth it. And that brings us to the cost account. Look at verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid, it, uh, laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And and if not, while the other is yet a great, great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. As I mentioned, when we began, Christ is not attempting to dissuade anybody. He's simply making full disclosure. Right? He's Removing any idea of fine print. He's laying, he's again not laying down the terms of salvation, but learning, laying down the terms and conditions of discipleship. What is the life of a believer to look like? And he was making sure again, no confusion, no ambiguity, no surprises. Salvation was not going to be easy. Salvation was going to come at a cost. And he says, it's the right and prudent thing to do to count that cost. If there's going to be such a cost, you need to count that cost before you decide to follow. You need to take the time and think about this. And he gave them a couple of examples to illustrate the point. He he said, you know, no one's going to start a new edition on their home, particularly in our market right now, um, if they don't have the money to finish the project. Because if they take the project on and don't have the money, and then that new addition just sits there, half finished. People are going to drive by, and they're going to laugh. They're going to make a mockery of who you are and what you've done because you just lacked forethought and planning. And then he said a king would never consider walking into battle before counting the number of men that he had and the number of men his enemy had and trying to determine whether going into battle was foolhardy or not. And if he determined that he was outnumbered, well then, you know, he would obviously need to do the right thing. You know, nobody would realize that they were outnumbered and not go seek peace with the one who had more, right? It would be foolhardy to not seek peace with the greater king. And while both of these stories, of course, stress that importance of counting the cost, this second story um, went a step farther than the first. His his point was that those who desire to be his disciples and count the cost, they need to know there are two options. Surprise, surprise, right? There are two options. 
One, they can go their own way and take their stand against God, the more powerful king, or they can choose wisely and seek peace with him. On his gracious terms. And the sole purpose of counting the cost, Jesus says, is to avoid a crisis. Verse 34, he says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Salt, you know, in your own study is used... As a seasoning agent, it's used uh, to preser- as a uh, preservative, and it's also uh, used even as a fertilizer. And while not as, as common today, there, at that particular time, salt uh, could, in the ancient world, lose its saltiness, either through extended use or if it was uh, exposed to moisture. And so it would cease to be useful Right? It, it couldn't be used for what it was intended to be used. And Jesus says, what, when that salt becomes useless, it's thrown away. And this, of course, is, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, this is a warning, generally speaking, to the nation of Israel. Right? He's telling them, uh, it's the sa- again, the same, same warning. That judgment was coming because they were rejecting Him. And they had ceased to be a blessing to the nations. But there's also a warning on an individual level. Right? In the context of this, things, the things that he's saying about those who choose to follow him. The, the disciple, he says, who is one in name only. The one who does not or did not or does not accept the challenge of loving Him and cherishing Him and desiring Him more than anyone or anything else and who wasn't willing to lay down His life for His sake was like saltless salt and was useless and would lose the opportunity for God to use them. And while this would be embarrassing, there was something that should be far more troubling. In the words of Daryl Bach, he said, this could allude to final judgment. Or, it could refer to the judgment of physical death that befalls some in the community of faith. The ambiguity may well well be intentional. Failure to pursue discipleship can indicate that faith is not really present, even though it was thought to be, or it can indicate spiritual rebellion. In either case, the situation displeases God. And then he finishes with this. It is better to obey and not be subject to this threat. So what are our takeaways? (laughs) What are our takeaways? Well, first, for those who aren't Christians, let me uh, remind you that this challenge, again, is not a means by which we enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is not earned 
by us. The kingdom is received by us. If this passage is about how to be saved, no one in this room is saved because we all fall short. Every single one of us. Fortunately, for all of us, salvation is not presented as as something that we earn through our works. It has been earned by Christ's work for us. And it's been given to us by Him as a gift. Forgiveness and freedom are offered to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation has been secured by Christ and is available for those who will repent of their sins and turn to Him in faith. And so the invitation for you tonight, if you are not a believer in Christ, is to repent of your sin, look to Christ, receive the forgiveness that He offers, call upon His name, receive the salvation that He is offering to you tonight. It's a free offer. But consider the challenge before you accept. I say that not to dissuade you. I say that in an effort to fully disclose so that you don't come to me later and say, what about this fine print that you didn't share with me? Salvation is free, but discipleship is not easy. Christ came to save us from sin, not from suffering, shame, ridicule, or persecution, at least not yet. He did come to make all things new, and there will come a day when all will be made right, ultimate justice will be served, evil and pain will be eliminated, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. But for now, we continue to live in a fallen world full of sin and suffering and sorrow and death. And Christ calls us in the midst of that world to follow Him. So count the cost. Come to Christ. And I promise you will receive far more abundantly all that you could ask or imagine, and nothing that you lose or give up, or I I should say, and, and what you lose and what you give up will pale in comparison to what you will gain in Him. Again, I promise, you will not be disappointed. For those who are Christians, again, listen to these words from Daryl Bach. He says, to apply this text requires serious self-reflection. Do we yield to the Lord in every area of our life, our possessions, our family, even our own lives? Do we really trust Him to care for us? Or do we have to help Him along by seizing control or by being careful that we avoid some of the tensions that inevitably come into the process when we take 
a position of representing Jesus to a needy world? These are hard questions, he says. Because it can be easy to say we have given over our all when we have only given over what we are comfortable handing over to Him. Part of counting the cost is that often we do not know ahead of time what the real cost will be. Why do we struggle with this challenge? Why is this challenge so difficult? There are a multitude of reasons, and you, can pro- you will probably think of some as you're heading home or as you talk about this later, but there's one that I, I thought of this week, and very simply, I believe it's, we struggle with this challenge because we lose sight of Christ and His cross. We forget what is ours in Him, what has been secured for us by Him. I think that's exactly what Isaac Watts, why why Isaac Watts wrote this hymn that was first published back in 1707. It'll be familiar to you. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, he says, my richest gain, he quotes Paul, my richest gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. He writes, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. And then the last verse, he says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were were a present far, far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. It's only in the light of the cross that we, like Paul and like Sir Isaac Watts, remember that our richest gain should be counted as loss. It's only in the light of his death that we will remember that we should die to ourselves And everything we possess pales in comparison to the forgiveness that is ours that has been secured by the sacrifice and the shedding of His blood. It is in the light, only in the light of His amazing and divine love that we will remember that our offering of gratitude should be nothing less than a life seeking to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And here's the good news. It's the bottom line. Only when we realize that Christ doesn't call us to do anything that He Himself hasn't already done for us, it's only then that we will respond by imitating Him and giving up everything to follow. He alone gives us the desire and the power to do so by His grace and by His Spirit. He does not call us to, 
that which he will not equip us to. Thanks be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word that has been preached with faith and love. May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Would you water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church. I pray these things. Amen.